Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I say sleep is the number one performance enhancing drug. That's what I say, like, you know, to athletes and, and to uh, soldiers, but it is the number one medicine because pretty much all functions of the body are tied to sleep. I mean, clearly sleep must be important because we have to spend one third of our lives asleep. There's nothing else that we do for eight hours or more a day that is that important. Welcome to the Unwind Podcast, a podcast for you to relax, drift off, and allow your mind to wander. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author, entrepreneur, and researcher on a mission to share information that will help you live happier, healthier, and with more love, optimism, and wisdom. This podcast features interviews with well-known guests and world-leading experts about what it truly means to be human and what we can do to become the very best versions of ourselves. On today's Unwind, I am thrilled to invite Dr. Alison Brager on the show. Dr. Alison is a neurobiologist with expertise in sleep and circadian rhythms. She not only contributes to sleep health research for the federal government, NATO, university departments, and the United States Army, but is also the author of Meathead, Unraveling the Athletic Brain. Dr. Allison pioneers inquiry into holistic approaches to better sleep management, jet lag recovery, and performance enhancement. In addition to over 30 peer-reviewed publications in flagship society journals, Dr. Allison has written op-ed and column pieces for science and professional society bulletins, various podcasts, and globally leading publications. It is a true honor to have such a leading voice in the sleep space on the show. I would love for you to share a piece of writing that resonates with you. So I am a uh, a huge Hemingway fan. You know, his writings have always resonated with me because, you know, he is an adventurer, right? He He always lived on the edge. He's a brilliant writer, but he also was a I guess you could say a functional alcoholic, and he went on these crazy adventures in South Africa on safaris, or he would go to uh, bullfighting contests in uh, Spain. Um, he was a, an avid fisherman. You know, the Hemingway, he's written, God, like 40-some novels. Uh, but one of my favorites, and, you know, it's also because I'm in the military too, and so he brings in a piece of military history from World War II. He was a medic during that time. So one of my favorite books from him is uh, A Farewell to Arms. And uh, he has this quote um, that says, the world breaks everyone and afterward, many are strong at the broken places. And, you know, I work in a culture where our biggest challenge is resiliency. And I think this is what this quote means. The world breaks everyone and afterward, many are strong at the broken places. I mean, at the end of the day, the world is a terrible place and humans are terrible, but humans are also awesome too in that we can thrive under the most terrible 
and uh, stressful circumstances. And so I really love that quote. Do you think that your experience in the military has clouded your lens on humanity? It has a little. I would say I definitely felt that way when I was deployed in the Middle East, right? It's hard for me to wrap my mind around a culture that shields women from living their lives. I got to see the full scope of beauty of just how beautiful women are in Islamic cultures, but it was in the bathroom, right? Because they wear burqas. And um, I always just found that so fascinating because they would, especially in places like Kuwait, right? Richest, one of the arguably richest countries in the world. These women are just gorgeous. Like they have couture suits on. They all wear like Manolo Blancs and like Jimmy Choo's and like high-end fashion underneath. Uh, they have a full hair done makeup, but nobody is there to see it except amongst each other inside the women's bathroom. So I would say, yeah, that, you know, that experience has really jaded me. But, you know, it's also made me uh, appreciate what I am able to have here uh, back in the United States. And what keeps your optimism, as you just said, you know, part of humanity can be terrible, but also there is so much beauty in the strength that we can show, especially in really desperate situations. So where does the optimism then continue from? Honestly, I always say this, and I, I, I really feel this is true, like nothing brings together humanity like sports. Like if you think about society's figures across the world who are able to cross cultures and different religious and political beliefs and belief and value systems. It's the athletes, right? And it's not mm. just the athlete of one country. It's the athlete of, of many countries like Ronaldo, right? Like he's legendary athlete. Events like the World Cup or the Olympics where you have people coming together and who put their differences aside and are, are there for the love of sport. So that's what I think about when I think about like the circumstances when humans can be good. It reminds me of that historic story of the war just pausing on Christmas Day for two sides to have a football match. Sport kind of unites people even in the most unusual situations. Yeah, and you see that a lot, especially when you're deployed. I was deployed during the 2018 Winter Olympics. And it was really cool, right, to be there with different countries um, and cheer for our teams, you know, just, yeah, put the war aside for the moment because we were in the middle of a war that and just cheer for our teams just like everyone else back in America and Italy and Germany were in the UK too. I've deployed with uh, uh, soldiers from the UK as well. So I'd love for everyone to hear about your incredibly unique position bringing the military and sleep health together. Would you mind telling us a bit about how this amazing intersection happened and what your role is? So I was a traditional academic. Um, I, I've been a sleep researcher now for about 20 years, but I always felt like I never fit in with academia. A lot of people didn't take me seriously because I had this alternative ego as an elite athlete. I've competed my whole life in, in sport and um, I didn't fit in. Like it didn't matter how much grant money I brought in to support my research or what publications I, I published in that were extremely high impact. It didn't matter. So 
I started looking for different career options and I happened to, uh, through a friend, um, hear about working for the military. And at the time, I didn't, I ignorantly didn't realize that the military had sleep researchers, uh, which is ridiculous of me because a lot of the early sleep studies done in the 50s and the 60s were actually from the military. So yes, I started working for the Army first as a civilian, and then I commissioned as an officer in the United States Army around uh, about six years ago. Essentially, what I do is I conduct clinical studies and field studies to look at the impact of sleep deprivation on military performance. Um, and you know that definition is pretty broad because we're not just looking at how well you shoot or you don't shoot when uh, you're sleep deprived. We're actually looking at how quickly and accurately you make decisions, how well you're able to assess threat in your environment, and how it impacts your relationships with other people. Um, so it has been a, a great career transition, and it's one where you know, I can be myself and I can be respected for my science, but I can also be respected as an athlete too. Because even though I'm, you know, happily retired from professional sport now, I still identify very much so as an athlete. It's so interesting about the history of sleep and the military. And obviously it makes so much sense. And also I can imagine it must be the hardest place to get sleep, especially if you're in the middle of a war zone. And so these sleep hacks needed to be worked out way quicker for the military than anybody else. How does sleep training then unfold in this type of arena? And how do you facilitate that? It's kind of two sides. Unfortunately, some of the studies we do are a direct result of people dying because of sleep deprivation. There are select units within the military that we've been basically forced to work with because their commanders sleep deprived their soldiers too much and people died as a result. That's one end of it. The other end of it is taking these studies we do in the lab and then communicating it and educating commanders out in the field before bad things happen. So that's the approach we prefer to take now is to go in early on when these officers are going through their military training and include sleep education as part of their military training curriculum or provide them with handouts or flashcards. You know, we even do podcasts now, different forms of media that we can use to educate commanders in terms of the dangers of sleep deprivation. And what do you find people most misunderstand about sleep? Or what do you find in your teaching gets the biggest reaction that may feel surprising, especially to someone like you who've studied this for nearly two decades? A lot of high performers are like this. A lot of high performers think that sleep deprivation can be trained. That if you've been doing it your whole life, it means that it's easier for you. And it's actually the opposite. And there's this clinical test that's used commonly in psychology called the psychomotor vigilance test. Uh, it's a two-minute test of reaction time where you're basically assessed on how quickly you respond to a red dot that appears randomly on the screen. And people who claim that they're you know, resilient to sleep deprivation end up doing really poorly compared to people who have gotten adequate sleep. 
So it's not until we're able to objectively show them just how wrong they are that they actually believe us. Wow. Do you then find it laughable when you hear people say stuff like, oh, I'm just someone that can survive on four hours sleep. I don't need my sleep. Is that just scientifically untrue? Yes, it's scientifically untrue. Now, there is a very, very it's small population who are able to survive on four hours of sleep. But those are the people who we figured out become U.S. presidents. Um, if you look at a lot of the presidents of the United States of America, most of them only get about three or four hours of sleep a night. Oh, my gosh. And we find it's common in CEOs of major multi-billion dollar companies. So Elon Musk, um, Jeff Bezos, all those, you know, Richard Branson, you know, they've sort of pre-selected into success because they have that rare genetic variant um, where they're able to get by on a few hours of sleep. But not everyone is like that. Do you think it's actually quite unhelpful for us to glamorize those individuals because then the majority think that they are the genetic few that don't need sleep? I agree. So actually, who I really applaud is Ariana Huffington. I think if anyone should read a book on sleep, it should not be Matt Walker's Why We Sleep. It should be Ariana Huffington's The Power of Sleep. Because she is a successful businesswoman who recognizes the value and the power of eight hours of sleep. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like growing up in the UK, we always heard people talking about how Margaret Thatcher didn't sleep much or slept four hours a night and was celebrated for it, but obviously very sadly died of dementia. What is, you know, your understanding of the link between quality sleep and then long-term brain health? So in a lot of the sleep classes that I teach for these commanders, I talk about that link. So if you remember a few years ago, scientists discovered this system of the brain that acts like a waste disposal. Um, It's called the glymphatic system. And the role of the glymphatic system is to clear out toxins and waste that we build up across the waking day. And when you don't sleep, those toxins and those wastes end up staying around. And as a result, they can form plaques on your brain. And those are the plaques that are what makes uh, risk of Alzheimer's and dementia really high. Because ultimately, that's what they use in the end to diagnose Alzheimer's and dementia is uh, the, the level of these brain plaques that form from toxic waste buildup. Is there a way in which people sleep that means that your glymphatic drainage system is more efficient or effective? For example, I remember growing up and my mom used to say, oh, the hours before midnight are worth double the hours after midnight. And I remember thinking to myself, well, That seems so ridiculous because how would the brain know if it's like midnight or not midnight? So how can sleep optimize for the glymphatic drainage system or the opposite way, like reduce the effectiveness? No, that's actually a great quote. I might steal that quote from your mom. (laughs) You know, Ben Franklin used to say it too. He said, early to bed, early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. And there's truth to that because the earlier you go to bed, the greater the chance that you're going to enter the restorative stages of sleep that are directly tied to activating this glymphatic system and to clearing out toxic waste. 
So how does that work with jet lag then or when you're changing time zones? Do you then just not enter the lymphatic drainage system state? You're less likely to. So um, if you look at uh, data from the World Health Organization, they label shift work and people who travel routinely across different time zones as a level two carcinogen because you're shifting your biological clock so much that you're misaligning and disrupting your endocrine system, your immune system, you're interrupting this lymphatic waste clearance. Uh, There's a whole host of uh, digestive and uh, physiological processes that are impacted just by shifting time zones. I mean, that is shocking. Is there anything that anyone can do to intervene to override how negative shift work and jet lag can be? Or is this just something we need to accept? There are ways to, I would say, mitigate it, not override it. One way is napping. So people who are making sure they're getting good sleep before they start their ship work schedule or travel are already setting themselves up for success because the brain and the sleep system, it's like a bank account. The more you put in, the more you can take out. Um, Mm. The second thing you can do is to do a, a regimen of melatonin right before you go to sleep in that new time zone or right you know before you go to sleep after your shift work combined with um, staying up past the sun setting and then for people who travel like getting in exercise right after you get off the plane to stimulate blood flow so those three things can help shift your biological clock more quickly into this new time zone What are your thoughts on taking melatonin? Because I know there's quite a lot of controversy over how effective or how actually healthy it is for someone long-term. So melatonin is very safe. If you are taking melatonin nightly and you are on a structured sleep schedule, that melatonin is actually acting more like a placebo than anything. (laughs) Right. Now, if you're traveling... It can be effective because typically you're taking that melatonin during a time when your body isn't naturally producing it. The signal's not going to be as strong as the internal one, but it at least provides some of the signal in an otherwise environment that there is going to be no signal otherwise. What is the difference between sleep health in men and women? Yes. So I'm happy you asked me that because um, that's actually what I studied when I was doing my sleep fellowship in Atlanta, Georgia, is uh, we actually looked at genetic differences between males and females. Uh, We used the mouse model for this, but we also used clinical patient data as well. So men and women actually do sleep differently. And we found through our studies, it's driven by the XY chromosome. So it's actually not driven by testosterone or estrogen or any endocrine factor. It's driven simply by having the Y chromosome. And typically what happens is men suffer more from daytime sleepiness, but men get a much better um, night of sleep than we do. And it's not just because of kids or being pregnant or even being postmenopausal. It's just men have evolved to have deeper sleep than we do, which makes sense evolutionarily, right? Like we're going to 
have lighter sleep because typically we are the child-bearing, child-rearing person um, who's always going to be on high alert for danger in the environment. How then do you change your advice for when women ask what your tips are to get better sleep compared to men? So women, unfortunately, we have to be very disciplined about having a good sleep routine. We're Mm. more likely to have disrupted sleep and not be able to enter the deeper stages of sleep if we don't have a good structured sleep routine. Whereas men kind of have it easier and you know, they don't have to go through the the list of things you should do to prepare for bed like we do. But we also don't fall asleep like them in the middle of the day. So it's more important, just to kind of echo that, it's more important for women to have a regular routine sleep wind down than it is for men. And that's because in order for us to get into the deeper stages of sleep, we need to prepare our body in more of a kind of explicit way. Yeah. And actually, um, it changes throughout the month too. So um, one of the companies I sit on the science advisory board for is Whoop. Um, And, you know, I'm not like promoting the product here, but one thing about their platform is they have this menstrual coaching app where it gives you different sleep recommendations and factors in your recovery around when you're ovulating and when you're on your cycle. And how does sleep change depending on where one is in the menstrual cycle? So usually we have our worst sleep leading up to actually menstruating. So right around the time of ovulation and right afterwards, that's when we're most likely to have the disrupted sleep. And then during menstruation and right after, that's when we have the deepest sleep. You know, it's not, I guess, true for everyone because, you know, some women have worse periods than others. And, you know, it it also depends on the person too. I think this is really interesting because, again, the relationship between sleep and hormones is a very under-discussed one. I'd love to kind of dive into that a little bit further, actually. What is this delicate relationship and how do we balance it? So in general, I think what you have to recognize is estrogen is wake-promoting and testosterone can be recovery-promoting. And, you know, women do secrete little pockets of testosterone here and there. So depending on your endocrine levels of estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone, those can determine the quality of your sleep. And men are susceptible to this too. So men who have low testosterone, uh, which is very common in military and athletes, because a lot of times athletes are under-recovered, they have really poor sleep as a result. So it's not, again, it's not just a female-specific problem. It is both a male and female-specific problem as a result of having abnormal hormonal levels. I mean, this could be kind of life-changing information, right? Because if you've been struggling with sleep for years and not really understanding why and tried everything, this could actually be signaling that you have unbalanced hormones. Yep. And I think the best example of that is um, one of the best ways to fix sleep issues for women post-menopause is going on hormone replacement therapy. And would you mind explaining what hormone replacement therapy is and what sort of hormone replacement therapy would, how that could help sleep, for example? Yeah, so postmenopause, 
we're basically reproductively dormant. And so you have a dysregulation of estrogen and progesterone um, with a little bit of testosterone too. So what hormone replacement therapy does is it returns the levels of estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone back to levels of a normal healthy female well before menopause. Um, so it's like basically providing postmenopausal females who are in their 50s with an endocrine environment like that of their 30s. And so which hormone in particular do you think can be most disruptive for sleep? And if you're highly stressed, how would cortisol or how could maybe different life challenges affect these hormonal levels? So it's not like one hormone in particular, it's a concoction, but the big three would be testosterone and estrogen, and then also cortisol, because when cortisol is high, estrogen and testosterone are impacted by that. So I would say those three, testosterone, estrogen, and cortisol. And so cortisol being the stress hormone, let's say someone's had a chronically stressed time at work, how would that rise in cortisol then impact the other two? And why? And also why? Like, that's why I always find interesting. There's always a reason why the human body does what it does. Yeah, no, absolutely. So high cortisol will lead to low testosterone and low estrogen. And the reason for that is because, you know, in basic biology, we have energy promoting or building processes. Those are called anabolic processes. And then we have catabolic processes, which are breaking down energy reserves. So cortisol is a catabolic process. It basically signals the body to put glucose fats into the bloodstream to use for energy. But the problem with that over time is if that system is overly activated, then you're running out of energy reserves, which is going to completely deplete you. Now, testosterone and estrogen, they have the opposite role. They're anabolic. And so when you have high levels of those in your body, those are what replace energy reserves. So if you have a state of high cortisol, that is preventing testosterone and estrogen from replenishing those energy reserves. And that's why people who are super stressed and have high cortisol are so depleted physically, emotionally, and, and mentally. And then I guess what's so crazy about this is that you're so depleted, you need sleep more than ever, and then your sleep becomes disrupted. Yep, exactly. Because if you think about it, sleep is a, it's a process of conserving energy. It's only during sleep where we build up these energy reserves. Um, and it's actually only sleep when the body secretes testosterone. There's no other point in time when testosterone is secreted except for during sleep. And that's true for both men and women. Dropping in to tell you about a company who is improving the way we walk, Vivo Barefoot. Vivo Barefoot are on a mission to create regenerative footwear that brings you closer to nature and your natural potential. Humans have evolved for over millions of years to essentially walk, move and run barefoot. But modern cushioned shoes have impacted foot function and are now contributing to a movement-focused health crisis in the process. That's why Vivo Barefoot's footwear is designed to be wide, thin, flexible and as close to barefoot as possible. 
They promote your foot's natural strength and movement. And I can definitely say from my own experience that feeling the ground beneath your feet really connects you to the world around you. I find it grounding, relaxing, especially after a day chained to emails at my desk. They are almost like therapeutic shoes. Vivo Barefoot has a great range of shoes for every activity. So whether you're hiking, dancing, or just want a comfortable pair for every day, they won't disappoint. They're also sustainable and made of recycled materials. So you're protecting the planet one step at a time. Vivo Barefoot are offering a 100-day free trial on their footwear and you can purchase yours today with an exclusive 15% off for our listeners when you visit www.vivobarefoot.com unwind. The link will be in the show notes. I think that we don't spend enough time celebrating what sleep does and so it would be really helpful to kind of almost have a a brief overview of what even happens to our body during sleep. Why is sleep the ultimate medicine? I say sleep is the number one performance enhancing drug. That's what I say like, you know, to athletes and and to uh, soldiers, but it is the number one medicine because pretty much all functions of the body are tied to sleep. I mean, clearly sleep must be important because we have to spend one third of our lives asleep. There's nothing else that we do for eight hours or more a day that is that important. And how does sleep affect our mental health? So what I like to say is sleep deprivation hijacks mental health. When we're sleep deprived, our emotional system essentially unravels. There becomes a disconnect between the emotional processing centers of the brain and the executive function centers of the brain. So those, you know, rational thinking, decision-making, risk-taking centers of the brain become hijacked. And there's a loss of, of reason and, and rational thought all throughout sleep deprivation. So it's uh, it can lead to a, a really uh, nasty, vicious cycle of um, irrational thinking and behavior. Is there any tips or questions one should ask themselves to realize or work out how sleep deprived they are? Because I think it's sometimes people are in a super stressful situation that isn't sleep deprivation. They just are in a really tricky time in life. And then other times, actually, it's more the sleep deprivation that's talking, not the circumstance. What are your thoughts on that and how to navigate and tell between the two? Well, first off, I think if people were just more aware of how they felt after a good night of sleep and what the next day afterwards was like, that would help. But usually people who are sleep deprived, it creeps up on you in the middle of the day when you don't realize it. For example, if you're having difficulty forming thoughts or forming words, articulating words, if you are, you know, getting into a car and you're you know, feel like your eyes are really heavy and you want to close them. Or even if you're engaged in a, in a work task, that's super important, but you're like, you're quickly losing focus. Those are the predominant signs of sleep deprivation. From an immune system standpoint, how would you know that maybe your lack of sleep is contributing to poor health? First off, people who are sleep deprived get sick way more often. That's why there's such a rich body of literature now linking COVID-19 infection to sleep. People who took time during the pandemic to catch up on lost sleep and to have structured sleep schedules were far less likely to be infected by COVID-19 than people who 
you know, had very dysregular and chaotic sleep schedules uh, during the pandemic. Oh, that's such interesting research. And this probably leads me into sleep debt. Why is sleep debt so important? Because I know this is something you talk about a lot. So it goes back to that point I made earlier about if you have high sleep debt, this means that sleep will creep into your day when you least expect it. You know, this can be really dangerous, especially if you're driving a car, if you're engaging in high risk activity with a weapon, or even if, you know, let's say in the business world, this could lead to really uh, emotionally volatile behavior. It is pervasive. And the only way to replace sleep debt is to make up for this debt through sleep. The consequences of us not prioritizing sleep are vast. And yet, this feels a very relevant and new conversation we're culturally having in more public places. It's funny you mentioned about public places because um, it, it's not like that in all cultures. Um, I, I will say a few years ago, we were involved with this uh, photo shoot for National Geographic who was tasked with uh, capturing sleep in cultures around the world. And one of the things that I found fascinating about working with this issue was a lot of times in Japanese cultures, uh, the Japanese just sleep anywhere in public and embrace it. Um, they mm. have these little mini hotels where businessmen can go to and catch, you know, an hour or two hour nap and then go back to the office. Or you'll, you'll commonly see people in the workplace like sleeping against a wall um, on the subway. Not all cultures are like that, but uh, Americans, I like to think, are the worst. Uh, we, I think there's a reason why uh, not only do we have some of the worst mental health in the world, but also the highest divorce rates. I think a lot of it has to do with just how low of a priority uh, we have when it comes to sleep. So what are your top tips to get a better night's sleep and especially what are the ones the military use in environments where they're not exactly conducive to a good night's sleep? So the good thing is, is you can use these sleep habits everywhere. I've used them when I've been deployed. I use them. I stay quite frequently in hotels because I travel a lot with my job. But the main one is you have to be very disciplined about going to bed as early as possible. As soon as you feel after dinner and after you've wound down and put your kids to bed, the urge to sleep, you need to capitalize on that. And one thing you can do to further capitalize on that is to dim the lights in your house uh, because that will actually facilitate the internal production and release of melatonin. So that's the first thing you should do. The second thing is very obvious. You should put away your cell phone and your TV. I argue at least an hour before bed so it doesn't disrupt with that internal production and release of melatonin. And then the third sleep tip would be to sleep in a dark and cool place. I just wrote a piece about this. If you have a bed partner who is disruptive to your sleep, force him or her to sleep in the other room. <laughs> That's I know it sounds cruel and mean, but again, Americans are also like one of the few cultures where we insist on sleeping with our bed partner. I guess, ironically, it probably saves the relationship, especially if it's a romantic one, if you two do get better, a better night's sleep. Yeah. What are your yes. thoughts on, you know, you've done those tips and you lie in bed and you just can't switch your busy brain off? 
So there's two tips. First, you have to get up out of bed. Um, mm. You have to separate yourself from that inability to fall asleep. And the mm. second thing I would say is to, well, not go on your phone or watch TV, but engage in breath work or maybe progressive muscle relaxation where you're working on slowly relaxing and like calming your heart rate. That can help. And through the process of doing progressive muscle relaxation and breath work, like taking four breaths in and four breaths out, over time you're probably going to feel sleepy and then you can go back into bed. And what are your thoughts on journaling or I guess that 3 a.m. wake up? Or I tell you what annoys me the most. It's like the wake up that is too early to like fully get out of bed because you're like, I guess I could sleep for another two hours, but also do I just consider this morning and get up? What would you do in those situations? So keeping a structured sleep schedule is the best thing. You want to have a consistent rise time and bedtime, no matter if it's the weekend or weekday. And as Mm. soon as you wake up, you want to expose yourself to bright light. You want to go out and look at sunlight and you want to expose yourself to as much light as possible to reinforce to your brain that it is time to be awake. What are your thoughts on eating, drinking supplements? So you should have your last meal at least two or three hours before bed. If you eat something else, it should be low in um, sugar and high in protein. That will prevent your blood glucose from spiking. You should always hydrate before bed and be okay with waking up in the middle of the night to go pee, then go to bed dehydrated because basically you're inactive for eight hours. And then when it comes to sleep supplements, not everyone needs them, but I do think athletes and people who have... um, highly physically active jobs. They do need maybe a sleep supplement like magnesium, um, which is uh, an essential element that is uh, rapidly depleted through sweat. So if you can get uh, these electrolytes in you, they can actually lead to better sleep. I'm a complete magnesium convert and I have been for about seven years. So I fully, fully testify to that being incredibly helpful. What are your thoughts on having sex before bed? Is this conducive to sleep or not? Oh, it's absolutely conducive to sleep. It's funny. I work with a bunch of firefighters um, on the side and like that always gets them to pay attention, but it's true. (laughs) Sleep always works. That's so great. How do you unwind? What's your bedtime routine? So I start my bedtime routine 90 minutes before bed. Um, I make sure I put away my work. I dim the lights in my house, or if I'm not home, I just create a dim environment in the hotel. About 30 minutes before bed, I take a hot shower, and afterwards, my lights are are dim and low. Don't go on my phone. I don't watch TV. Take my magnesium supplement, because I'm a big convert of magnesium too, and then I go to sleep. Before you go, I'd love to reflect on your time in the military because it is so fascinating and unique experience. What do you think you have maybe learned about yourself or what has been your most unusual reflections of having such an insight into the military that you may have been surprised about before you joined? I mean, really, I think the human body is capable of everything because 
it is amazing how much your body can adapt to a high stress environment without you realizing it. That can also be dangerous too, right? Because you also don't realize what the recovery is like afterwards. I guess as an example, when I was deployed, I wasn't getting good quality sleep because our bunkers, uh, I was in a bunker with like six different women. We had different schedules. It gets really cold in the desert at night. And we were sleeping next to the flight path where all the military planes would come in. It wasn't until after I came back that I realized it probably took me about four or five months to make up for the lost sleep that I had while I was deployed. But the whole time when I was deployed, like I was always on high alert, right? Which I guess makes sense subconsciously because even though we were away from where the conflict was during the war in Afghanistan, uh, we were still within, you know, the vicinity. So, it, you know, it has really made me recognize just how, how adaptive and responsive the human body can be. Yes, but also when you share that, also how much the human body does need to be nurtured and recovered. I experienced burnout and I think a year of sleep deprivation and crazy traveling, I think it may have taken me 18 months, if not two years to have recovered. Yeah. So that's usually what we say is for every night of sleep lost, it takes about two nights to recover that sleep lost. Dr. Allison, thank you so much for being on The Unwind and just sharing such nutritious information that is truly beneficial and will improve our quality of life in such a significant way. You have a brilliant book, which we will put a link into the show notes, but where is the best place for people to find you? Do you, are you open to questions or what should we share? You know, you can follow me um, on Instagram at docjockzzz. You can also, yeah, you know, buy my book. It's a practical guide for how to get sleep, especially for athletes. And it really does sort of delve into the science behind athletes and on what physical training can do for uh, brain health and well-being thank you so much we are so enamored by your work and you as a person and what you've done so uh, we really appreciate you spending the last hour with us oh of course absolutely thank you so much for listening and if you enjoyed today please hit subscribe and leave a comment because this helps the podcast so much i'd be endlessly grateful if you wouldn't mind doing so my mental health book happy not perfect is available to order now the book teaches you how to be a flexible thinker a skill that helps you navigate any challenge that might come your way helps you manage emotions and helps you thrive to be the bendiest version of yourself Until next time, I love hearing from you. So do shoot me a message on Instagram. Send me a DM with any of your thoughts. Stay safe and well. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.